estrogen's the coping hormone. It's the self-esteem hormone. It's the self-worth hormone. It's the uh, stress reducer. And it's only when, when estrogen is low, the cortisol has to kick in and take over. And so this creates a problem for women too. And they'll get the adrenal fatigue and adrenal burnout and they'll feel wired and tired. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. All right, between the expert at Whole Foods, your hairdresser, Dr. Google, and your most savvy friend, it's hard to know who and what to believe when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. So today in part two of the series, Bioidentical Hormone Replacement Therapy, past and present, we are going to dive into myths and truths of hormone replacement therapy. I would like to take a minute and welcome back Marie Hoig and Tony Labress. Guys, thanks for coming back on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. All right. Let's start this one off with a very, there is this myth. There is only one kind of hormone replacement therapy. I know the last episode I talked about the four generations of right. HRP, and I'm not sure how much more you want me to get into with that, or if you want me just to do a recap. Just, uh, you know, let's talk about some of the ones that we've talked about the four generations in episode one. Let's talk about some of the things that are not like pellets, like pellets are one therapy that are, has gone wrong, in my opinion. And some of the other therapies that like stage one, two, the stage one, two, and three, we know four is where we're headed. The fourth generation is where we're headed. And we'll discuss that in greater detail in, in a single episode. But let's talk about the ones that have gone bad. The ones that don't work. Yes. So you want to talk for about men or women? Because I'll let Tony talk about men, and I'll. I, yep. You go first. When women first. Okay, the HRT systems that don't work. Exactly. Um, well, in the last episode, and this will encourage your listeners to listen to episode one if they didn't. But a lot of women are on pellet therapy or on low-dose hormones or on patches, sprays, pumps, or suppositories or sublingual. And this mindset and even uh, pellet therapy is give the person one dose, the same dose every day. And when you give somebody the same dose of hormones every day, this fizzles out receptors. It's like taking a pain med after surgery where you have to take two pain meds to get it to work after a couple of days because you fizzled out the receptors of that pain med. So you have to continuously increase your dose. So hormones that are giving in a low and static format will tend to get an estrogen dominance effect because there isn't enough receptors to receive, utilize, and detoxify the estrogen out of the system in a timely fashion. So you'll see women storing estrogen in fat and in their gut, and then they'll create an estrogen dominance effect. And so people think that estrogen dominance is high estrogen, and those are two completely different things. And so high estrogen is not estrogen dominance. And so a lot of women 
kind of go crazy. They'll feel good when they get on a little bit of hormones, but they stop working over a period of time because you're not triggering that receptor response. Usually these doses are prescribed in the lowest dose possible for the shortest amount of time. The doctors are instructed to start your dose low and go slow, but there's no instruction on where to go. No no titration schedule, no when do you adjust it, no is there a clinical goal that we're shooting for, do we, is there a, a system in place that we can work on just about everybody. You know, so these women are really having a tough time getting their hormones balanced because they're going to doctors who just who practice the static low dose hormones. They don't realize they're creating a lot more problems for themselves. They did they didn't have when they were just estrogen deficient. So not only are they estrogen deficient, they're estrogen dominant as well. And I know that it can get confusing for people. Right. Right. Tony, what about you? Delivery systems, well, pellets. Yeah, I I certainly can I don't recommend pellets for many reasons. Uh Invasive. No, there's no need to to have that. I don't. You'll get a maybe a two month uh, two month high. You might feel a little good for about two months, maybe six eight weeks, somewhere in that range. And then and then the roller coaster ride begins. And it, it's too hard to control the delivery method if you have to make changes on dosages. Uh, just not a fan. Very expensive. And, and there, there's just much better ways for men to deliver testosterone into the system if indicated. So. You know, Tony, that's a big thing that you that you uh, touched on that I think people really don't realize is you can't adjust the dose. Once you load somebody up with a hormone, the goal is to just let them peter out on it. There's no real adjusting in it. And you can't, you know, add a dose or adjust the dose according to the patient. So, yeah, that's a that's a big thing. I know. Tom, is there another question on that as far as um, you just want to just dress pellets or do you want me to move into you what, what, whatever you feel is is necessary. I mean, there's you know basically we're a lot of people say there's only one kind of HRT, but that's that's not true because we discussed the the fourth four generations in episode one. Mm-hmm. So, but for men, you know, it's a whole different ball game because you know you and I both know that women have a whole lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, as far as delivery systems, the types of delivery systems, I guess I can just talk to that. So pellets, buccal delivery, which are basically a lozenge you put on your tongue, let it melt in. You'd have to dose it twice a day for consistency. It's quite expensive as well. I mean, monthly fees for buccal delivery are about $250. Pellets will run you anywhere from $150 to $225 a month on average if you were to work that out. Testosterone patch, about $250. Um, it's a, about a five milligram delivery per day. Then you have the gels. Everybody knows Androgel is pretty much the most famous one. Uh, test them, very sticky, not user-friendly. Uh, doses are, aren't high enough. They're not optimal enough, uh, in my opinion. And the gels, if you were to cash pay for them, up to, up to $300 a month. Hmm. The, um, the delivery system of my choice, occasionally I would, uh, if, if men are afraid of needles, we would just move into the um, lipoderm-based creams. And, and you'll see some. Uh, actually, I've seen uh, visceral fat uh, reductions with the with the lipoderm-based creams. So there's a time and a place maybe to use those. Um, but ideally, my number one choice would be um, just a, a small insulin syringe and uh, injectable twice a week would be my delivery system of choice. That's very stable, very easy to dose. And I, if I really had my my druthers about it, I would do very small daily injections to mimic the body's natural production. Okay. Similar to with you know um, Marie and and um, the other rhythmic dosing folks, 
are dosing, you know, similar to the body rhythm, the rhythms, you know, pulsing hormones, the body pulses hormones. So if I had my choice, um, I would do small injectables daily body on average puts out somewhere between seven and 12 milligrams of testosterone a day in an optimal male. So um, we would deliver that system in a small insulin syringe. You can do sub-Q injection. It's more of a time release there. You might have, there is some small chance of aromatization, but you monitor the estrogen levels, make sure that that's not an issue. But a small, uh, small injection would be my choice, but many men don't want to do that. So the delivery system would be optimally would be twice a week injections. This is a biggie here. Hormone replacement therapy isn't safe. Causes cancer in both men and women, prostate for men, of course. Uh, blood clots and cardiovascular disease. Who wants to take this one first? Marie? Yeah, I can take this one first. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation about estrogen and cancer and testosterone and cancer. And I believe a lot of these uh, fears have to do with keeping physicians away from actually adequately dosing their patients because there's a lot of diseases that just don't exist in people who have adequate dosed hormones. And the thing is, is if you do any sort of digging around at all in the National Library of Medicine, what you'd find is, well, I still haven't found that study that estrogen causes cancer. So if anybody finds it, let me know. Not even synthetic estrogen. Hmm. What I did find was there are an abundant amount of studies that talk about how people, women are more susceptible to cancer and tumors and other diseases when estrogen is kept too low. In fact, they were using high-dose estrogen therapies before the invention of tamoxifen to treat cancer. Hmm. So this whole shift in the fear that estrogen causes cancer uh, was really created by the pharmaceutical industry so they could prescribe tamoxifen instead of high-dose estrogen. So you can't patent a bioidentical product. And so you can't make a lot of money off of, you know, bioidentical estrogen like you could off tamoxifen as cancer treatments. I mean, doctors don't even realize even Estrazorb is a static dose HRT system, but it's high dose estrogen. It's considered the only high dose that doctors prescribe it. And they don't even know that they're prescribing high dose estrogen according to the standards of being high dose. Hmm. So actually what we found is there is an abundance of studies that show that people are more susceptible to mental and physical atrophy and decline and disease when their main sex hormones uh, are kept too low. So, and with the practices that I, the, the clinic that I've worked in, that's all we do is HRT. That's it, nothing else. And so when you see patients come in day in and day out, and that's all we have are hormone patients, you think that we would see an abundance of the several thousand patients we have, that we would see an abundance of breast cancer and tumors and diseases because we've given all these women high-dose estrogen therapies. But in reality, what we've seen is a reduction of these. And so I have to go by what I've seen in my research and mostly what I've seen in the clinic to be true. So it is a myth uh, that estrogen causes cancer and that doctors that keep estrogen too low in women are really putting women at greater risk of getting breast cancer. Hmm. You know, it's, it's frightening, uh, but doctors are afraid to, to dose it too much. Uh, they don't know, especially the mental disease, the mental health and the emotional diseases, the, the conditions that women are, get when their estrogen is too low. So yeah, women will go, women will be crazy and their bodies will fall apart uh, and their emotions will be all over the place if estrogen remains too low. 
It's not until estrogen is in abundant amounts at the sweet spot that works for that person in a particular range that will protect. Estrogen is cancer protective. There are studies that actually say that estrogen is cancer protective. It protects the body against cancer and women are more susceptible to getting cancer if it is low and it remains too low. Okay. Tony, what about you and the prostate end and the men's testicular cancer? Yeah, no, I, I, I get it, Tom. I, I think people really need to look at uh, at the work of uh, Abe Morgenthaler. I mean, I think his work has pretty much uh, laid the, the foundation to disprove any mythical data that, that uh, has entered the system as far as prostate cancer being caused by too high levels of testosterone. In fact, the argument is quite the opposite, that too low levels of uh, certainly lower than physiologic levels. And uh, we can argue about how low is too bad and for how long. But and he put out a great publication destroying the myth about testosterone replacement and prostate cancer. If you folks want to look that up, it's a great read. He also has a good presence on YouTube. But he's a, he's a physician out of um, a, a urologist out of the Boston area. And he's been studying prostate and cancers and testosterone replacement for over 30 years. So um, I, I'm fortunate enough to have one of his partners actually practice about one mile from my home. I actually met him a few weeks ago. So we had a long, about an hour discussion actually about the work that they've done together, Dr. Dollar, Dr. Mark Morgenthaler. So um, that's, some, that's a resource your folks can look up. But it, it, the argument is, is exactly the opposite. When, when levels are robust and the males, we don't see males coming down with prostate cancer when their testosterone levels are at optimal ranges. You know, when they're youthful, healthy, optimal ranges, we don't have prostate cancer issues. So the, an argument can be made about metabolites of DHT being pushed into the non-productive carcinogenic side that we could have that discussion, but maybe for a later date. But in reality, when you look at the pathways of testosterone and pushes into DHT, which affect the prostate, you have a protective um, the side of DHT, and then you have maybe a, um, a, a metabolite, the alpha metabolite of DHT that is um, not a protective side, one you'd want to stay away from, you want to push away from that path. So the body does it beautifully on its own. We, we don't have to um, influence it. And I would also argue on the side of estrogen being elevated in males is another issue. The germ layer that the prostate is made of is the same germ layer that the uterus is made of. So that germ layer is um, uh, it, it has uh, profoundly has um, estrogen receptors on that tissue. So if you can imagine testosterone being depleted in a male and estrogen rising, estradiol levels rising above physiologic normal um, ranges for a male, that you will in fact activate estrogen receptors on the prostate gland, causing more inflammation. So that process in and of itself, I am sure is not, I'm absolutely sure is not helpful for a prostate. So um, while men need estrogen, they don't need supra-physiological doses of estrogen. Okay. Uh, that, that'll be counterproductive. So um, on that side, I would argue um, that the research uh, more supports now that having low doses uh, of, of serum uh, testosterone is more detrimental to prostate health than normal physiologic doses. Okay. All right, let's tackle this next one. This is a biggie because there's a lot of confusion out there regarding estrogen and its role in cancer, estrogen and estrogen dominance. As you both know, estrogen is a big topic in a lot of areas, but you know, we think that we think that estrogen a lot of people think estrogen estrogen is bad. And estrogen is not bad at all. So who wants to tackle the the, the 
front of this one. The estrogen and its role in breast cancer? Yes, and estrogen, the, the difference between estrogen and estrogen dominance. We see estrogen dominance as being an estrogen deficiency issue. Okay. And estrogen dominance is when you, the body, a woman's body is unable to methylate estrogen out in a timely fashion. And if you can't detoxify estrogen out of the female body in a timely fashion, then it will look for places to store and it will store in fat and in the gut. And, um, and if women, usually women that are estrogen deficient tend to have irregular or constipated bowel movements. And if a woman isn't pooping on a regular basis, then she's storing her estrogen as well, because that's one of the ways that you detoxify estrogen right. through uh, bowel movements. But in order to properly detoxify estrogen in a timely manner, women need abundant amounts of estrogen circulating in the blood. And this has just been our clinical experience. So we were doing second-generation HRT, doing the low static dose hormones. We created a lot of estrogen dominance problems because, one, it was the same dose every day, so we didn't have a peak dose to trigger an upregulation of receptors. So if there isn't enough receptors to receive the hormones that you're giving the patient, then you're going to create an estrogen dominance effect. Those receptors are critical in the body's ability to receive those hormones, utilize them throughout the body, and properly detoxify them in a timely manner. And this doesn't get done with low static dose hormones as it does with high rhythmic dosing hormones. And so women who are estrogen deficient uh, will have a tendency to be estrogen dominant but it's estrogen deficiency that really makes a woman more susceptible to breast cancer. That's why you see younger women don't have as much breast cancer uh, as do women in their 50s. A 25-year-old would have a less chance of having breast cancer as a 55-year-old woman. And the biggest differences between those two are the level of estrogen that she has. Estrogen in high doses is used to treat can't breast cancer, and it was used for many, many, many years to treat breast cancer. So if a woman is really worried about getting cancer, uh, then I would highly recommend she get some good healthy levels of estrogen running through her blood because estrogen is cancer protective. Tony? Yeah, 100% agree with that. Regarding for men, I, I, I would say that physiologic doses of estrogen is absolutely normal in a male. It has many protective and beneficial ways of working in the body that, that we're certainly appreciative of. It's when estrogen starts to climb or steroid hormone binding, binding globulin starts to circulate and bind testosterone for, for the reasons that it does, um, where estrogen can start to rise. Aromatase activity is upregulated. Cortisol strongly impacts aromatase activity. So somebody who's highly stressed, who has chronic inflammation, who has chronic elevated cortisol levels, runs the risk the high, uh, with a high probability that their aromatase enzyme is going to get upregulated and we're going to start creating those estrogen and fat cells, estrogen production throughout the body. So we see it in men all the time now. Unfortunately, we're seeing it younger and younger. It's very sad. These people are not healthy when they come, uh, when they started going over their symptomology and then you run their lab work and you see the the levels happening at a younger and younger age. It's very scary, almost frightening actually to think that a 24 or 25 year old male can sit in front of you and be hypogonadal um, below 300 nanograms and sit there in front of you at 185 or 195 uh, nanograms of testosterone running through their bloodstream. 
Um, and, and it's very clear. We can see how it manifests in their body. We can see how it manifests in their mind and their depression levels. Doctors want to put them on uh, SSRIs. They uh, want to treat uh, forms of dementia in some cases. Uh, it's, it's actually quite sad. The list of medications that younger folks are bringing to mm. alarming. Mm. So, uh, but I, I agree. Uh, I agree with Marie um, on the cardio protective side and all the benefits of robust estrogen. And, you know, what most people, the clearance rate is what most people want to make sure that they're, that the system works properly, that the progesterone does what progesterone is supposed to do. The progesterone and the estrogen um, will optimize testosterone in the middle of their cycle. So, so that works properly. We need a good functioning uh, endocrine system. We need hormones to be optimized and anything that would take away from that process needs to be investigated, whether it be toxin, toxic load, stress, lifestyle, diet, et cetera. Okay. Stress seems to be a common, a common topic with both with the hormone system. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Well, women, are, women without estrogen will be just absolutely crazy. Right. I mean, it's very difficult for women to cope without estrogen. It's hard for them to take on that one more thing. They just, estrogen's the coping hormone. It's the self-esteem hormone. It's the self-worth hormone. It's the uh, stress reducer. And it's only when, when estrogen is low, the cortisol has to kick in and take over. And so this creates a problem for women too. And they'll get the adrenal fatigue and adrenal burnout and they'll feel wired and tired. But if you restore estrogen to, to healthy levels, then it calms the cortisol because estrogen is really the the Wonder Woman cape for, for women, if it's in abundant amounts, it affects the tissues, it affects the heart, it's, it protects the heart where it rebuilds the tissues. I mean, I, and the testosterone is across the board. It's like you need these hormone sex hormones in abundant amounts so that the cells and the tissues can even work. Maria, okay. I, just, I, I would have one question if I could, Tom. And I think because so many practitioners listen, listen to the, these type episodes, you know, estrogen dominance or estrogen dominance is actually an estrogen deficiency. Marie, how would you test? How would you, how would you, what's your preferred method of testing? Or is this by symptomology that you determine that what state they're in? Well, there's, there's physical and uh, emotional and mental symptoms of estrogen deficiency. So you could, there's clinical indicators of such. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, we do test. And the type of HRT we use, we need to use blood serum for that type of testing because we want to, it's our, our view really that if there isn't enough estrogen circulating in the blood, then a woman just doesn't have enough estrogen. So we use the blood serum testing uh, and then dose of hormones according to that. Yeah. And that's a very, that's an important point. That's a very important point. Yeah. That's where I was going. That's where I was going next is testing. So we could go right there. Yeah, so it depends on what generation of HRT the doctor's using. Uh, doctors who use low static hormones, you know, are, are turned on to the saliva testing, and these people show up at the A4M conference, conferences and sell their testing to physicians who do the low second generation HRT. But doctors who do third and fourth generation HRT understand that these saliva tests and blood spot tests are completely useless with optimizing hormones, especially the recommendations that are given with it. So uh, we see second generation HRT, a lot of people use saliva, but when you use the more advanced HRT systems, it's really best to use blood serum. And when are you testing? Um, if the patient is 
doing a rhythmic physiological dosing HRT system, then we want to test the hormones. It depends on what we're testing. Uh, if we're not testing progesterone, then if we're testing, testing estrogen, then we want to test that on day uh, 12, between day 12 and 13 of her cycle. And if we're testing for progesterone and estrogen at the same test, then we'll test on day 21 or 22 of her cycle where we know these peaks. Okay. Doctors who tell their patients to take their labs and don't specify the day of the cycle. To me, it's just, it's like, do you even know? It's like the patient comes back and it's like, you don't know where they were in the cycle. And as you know, day 12 is a peak of women's estrogen and day 18 is the lowest. It's like, how, what's the doctor? It's like, this is how one of the ways that you know that you're going to the wrong doctor is if they don't give you a specific date to test your hormones. Because how are they going to know? Are they going to go by the little range of, oh, well, your estrogen is 93. That means that you're in the ovulatory phase or you're in the follicular or the luteal phase, really. Uh, that's what you're going by. I mean, it just, it's crazy. So doctors that don't go uh, get any sort of formal training in HRT, any sort of hormone therapy to understand these, this, it's, it, it kind of drives me nuts. It's, it's, like, it's like a chiropractor doing heart surgery on a patient. That's just why? <laughs> you know, it's like, why? You got to go to somebody who actually has training in advanced HRT therapies, who actually knows what they're doing. They know when to test. They know what those ranges should look like. And more importantly, they know what to do to get the hormones to the sweet spot and dial them in for that particular patient. And to know when they're no longer in that sweet spot, because there are things that can bump a person out of a sweet spot, and then what to do to get them back in. So it's just really the education of the practitioner. So I, I recommend, you have to vet your doctors uh, good. Where do they get their education? What do they use for testing? When do they test their labs? And that'll give you a pretty good idea about the mindset of this practitioner and the kind of experience you're going to have mentally and physically on their HRT. Tony? Yeah, um, you know that it, that what Marie said just just rings so true. I, I I tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've seen labs come to me and I ask them what day and what day were these taken, and they just say, "Oh, I don't know. I'm not really sure." And uh, did you have this discussion with your doctor? No, never mentioned it. it just says I'm low this or I'm high that or uh, yeah, it's it's just amazing um, uh, that somebody could go in and offer that type of service and not be educated on it. And then many times physicians go uh, physicians go in and try to do people favors. You know, they're just trying to help people. So they have very good intentions, but they cause more damage than they do good. <laughs> and they're not really being forthright, though, either with their lack of knowledge. Sure, exactly. I, I, get, I hear this all the time from our transgender patients. It's like these doctors are prejudiced against transgender patients. I'm like, no, actually, your doctor just doesn't know what to do. Exactly. I mean, I, they just don't know what to do with <laughs> cisgender patients, let alone a transgender patient, even though it's not that different. Yeah. At all. But it's, it's, yeah, doctors just don't know because they're not, they don't teach this in medical school. They don't teach hormone replacement therapy in med school. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And then doctors are trying to uh, prescribe hormones with no training at all. So they don't know what they're doing. And then some may take a weekend class and learn, you know, slap a patch band aid hormones and send the patient out the door and can't figure out why the patient still feels crappy. They gave them hormones. Why are they still depressed? Aren't the hormones supposed to fix it? Sure. Well, that, uh, yeah. So if you're on hormones and still have symptoms that the hormones were supposed to fix and especially taking medications for those, you really do need to find somebody who is trained and who has a successful clinical HRT practice with, with clinical success. 
who says, oh, well, this is what we need to do. And we need to do it on this day. And we need to do this dose. And we need to do this with certainty because this is what they do day in and day out. Most doctors go, well, let's try this. Oh, okay, let's try this. Mm. You know, it's like, what? that's not the kind of, I mean, (laughs) it doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence as a patient to know that I'm going to be getting, you know, I'm going to feel any better than I do. I like the analogy you gave uh, before we started the call or before we started here about the car. Could you go through that again? Yeah, it just kind of really drives me crazy when, you know, doctors are keep messing around. Patients are coming in complaining that they know, you know, uh, just being a physician, that these are hormone issues and they start prescribing hormones uh, because they think it's going to work. They'll prescribe thyroid or progesterone or DHEA and all these other hormones without really addressing the main sex hormone of the woman. And it's like, it's like a car that doesn't run and you have a bunch of mechanics scratching their head, kicking the tires and checking the oil and can't figure out why the car doesn't run. But there the car sits with an empty gas tank that nobody's addressing. And so really you can't get anything right in the female brain or body unless you address the main sex hormone that dictates whether this woman feels like she wants to live or die. And so getting this hormone dialed in first actually allows all the other hormones to function to its fullest clinical capacity. And until you do that, you're going to keep messing around with these hormones and actually causing more problems. Like giving a woman progesterone without addressing the estrogen deficiency issue will create a very unhappy woman. Progesterone is only the calming hormone if there's an abundant amount of estrogen circulating in the butt blood and that's all there is to it. I've never met a happy camper woman on progesterone only who felt good. Sometimes they feel good for a little bit and they may address some of the symptoms, but in the long run, it just causes more problems. Hmm. But yeah, you really have to address the main sex hormone. Uh, Estrogen and progesterone need to be looked at as one main sex hormone and prescribed together. Uh, And then the other hormones tend to work themselves out mostly because you uh, if the hormones are dosed and administered in the correct way, then this tr- upregulates it. It triggers a receptor response, not only for estrogen and progesterone, but for all of the other hormones as well. So you'll get a hormone optimization on other hormones without even supplementing those just by optimizing estrogen and progesterone appropriately. Including the gut though, right? Oh yeah, the gut is such a huge factor in all this. Yeah, there needs to be a, a, a symbiotic a gut microflora state for hormones to uh, really flourish. Uh, but it's really a catch-22 thing because if a woman is estrogen deficient, she's going to have a dysbiotic gut. And uh, a dysbiotic gut shuts down ovaries. So you really do need to work on the diet and lifestyle as you prescribe hormones. You can't just do one without the other right. for most women. Really, no matter how old they are, even young women are having ovarian dysfunction uh, like we've never seen in generations before. What do you attribute that to? Um, a couple different things, though. Uh, like I mentioned in the, in the last episode, that this generation of young women are born generations deep with ovarian dysfunction. Their mothers and grandmothers had dysfunctional ovaries. Then these young girls are born with ovaries that don't produce enough estrogen that keep that keeps gets them a, a healthy cycling menstrual cycle without incident. And so these young women are put on birth control pills and antidepressants at such a young age. And that puts a young woman in chemical menopause, shutting down her ovaries. And so women will spend most of their lives with broken ovaries. 
most women spend their entire lives estrogen deficient. And so um, you'll get a lot of crazy, as well as the mother hands down the uh, dysbiotic gut microbiome too. So you have these young ladies with broken ovaries and dysbiotic guts. Hmm. And so you'll find these women are not making the pubescent transition into a state of reproduction. And you see a higher rate of PCOS where we see one in four young uh, reproductive women with PCOS. And this is also a transgenerational condition that can only be managed Hmm. and not cured. Hmm. So yeah, it's a lot of it and diet has a lot to do with it. So if you weren't born with dysfunctional ovaries or a dysbiotic gut, you can certainly create one with a diet. And so you really, you can't just slap a patch on a patient and call and send them out the door. You do have to address, you know, when they're going to bed, how they're sleeping, are they getting uh, physical activity out in the sunshine and fresh air? And, uh, and uh, what kind of diet are they eating? Are they eating a diet that the food is medicine and it's designed to nurture the ovaries into production? Or is the food a toxin and shutting down ovarian production and keeping the hormones from functioning the way that they should? Right. So yeah, it's more than just about the hormones. It's, it's the overall picture uh, of, of diet, lifestyle, right. that hormone optimization. Tony, you got anything to add? No, that was excellent. Um, no. Just, just, just for men, just quickly, the a lot of, a lot of the same things. You know, you can't out exercise a bad diet. You, the toxic load to the body has to be manageable. The optimization of liver function, GI function, all important. All affecting the hormone balance. All affecting what the body perceives as a stress and how the body responds to the inputs that you're giving it. All very important. Nothing in isolation. Nothing works in isolation. To sign up for my monthly newsletter, text RHCP, that's Rebel Health Coach Podcast, or Red Hot Chili Peppers, to 22828. Again, that's RHCP to 22828. Thank you and have an awesome day. All right, let's go into the wonderful world of menopause. A woman transversing the menopausal transition must nowadays feel like a rope in a tug of war, being pulled from one, being pulled first one way and then another by conflicting media accounts and shifting medical export expert medical opinion. The only light she sees at the end of the tunnel is a light of an oncoming train. <laughs> and I'll tell you something, she is welcoming it. She wants it to come faster because women without estrogen want to die. They don't feel good. And a woman can be in menopause at any age. She doesn't have to be old. Menopause just means that your period has stopped for 12 months for whatever reason. Your ovaries have shut down and no longer producing abundant amounts of estrogen. So I'm a big believer in menopause prevention. Women never have to go into menopause as far as I'm concerned. If you maintain a healthy menstrual cycle, then you never have to go into menopause. And that can be done with abundant levels of estrogen. So you don't have to be in menopause to need HRT. Menopause, I think this what, you're, what women are saying is you're old in menopause. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, but being seeing, watching a young 20-something-year-old woman in menopause, she's not a happy camper. And the only difference between a young woman who doesn't have periods and the old woman who doesn't have periods is age. They both have estrogen deficiency. 
And no woman without, uh, without estrogen feels good, no matter how old she is. So if you restore hormones to healthy reproductive levels, then a woman never really has to go through perimenopause or menopause at all. So even if you're not old, yeah, you still, some women need hormones because their ovaries will never be able to produce abundant amounts of estrogen ever. And so what are you going to do with them? I mean, I, we see younger and younger women who are in menopause. And so you try to do what you can with diet and lifestyle to trigger their own ovaries into production. But like I said, these, this generation is three, four generations deep in ovarian dysfunction and gut dysbiosis. And so these are all the things that, you know, shut down estrogen production. So what are you going to do? So these young women are put on HRT to get their body cycling again. And we've also seen putting young women on HRT just to get their body used to this cycle, this functionality. And you can, you can actually phase them off of hormones and their body will kick back in and say, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be because mm-hmm. you got them on the right diet and the right hormones. And you can do this with younger women. Uh, not so much as we were able to do that before just because the ovaries are so dysfunctional from the get-go. And then some women will just have, especially PCOS young women don't know that women, young women, no matter how old a woman is with PCOS, she's, she needs HRT. Doctors that keep messing around with symptomology and, oh, let's try this, let's try this with your PCOS. It's just the goal. PCOS women don't have regular menstrual cycles. And when menstrual cycles are irregular and ovulation, if women aren't able to ovulate, they don't have menstrual cycles. And estrogen is needed in abundant amounts to fix that, to ovulate. If there's no estrogen, there's no ovulation. And so estrogen is needed for ovulation. And no matter whether a patient is PCOS or not. So if you want to restore the menstrual cycle function in a PCOS patient, then you give her abundant amounts of estrogen extraneously because she'll never be able to do it on her own. Tony? Yeah, huge issue. I, I, we deal with it all the time. And I'm so glad that Marie mentioned that about um, the younger having cases of younger women actually uh, teaching the body how to cycle again and then actually coming off hormones and being successful. Because I've heard that several times through a couple of uh, physicians that I network with that, that that's absolutely possible. And I, I have not had a client that I've had a discussion with about the issue, but I've heard that before. That's, that's an incredible thing that shows you how, amazing, how amazingly resilient the body is. Because Tony, if you think about it too, these young women are put on birth control pills and antidepressants from the get-go. Once they start their periods because they're so dysfunctional, they don't even wait through that pubescent transition to have that healthy menstrual cycle. They're all of a sudden put on these birth control pills and it shuts down ovarian function. So their ovaries have never really fully uh, have done what they're supposed to do. But what I want to ask you, Tony, is you know, this is across the board, menopausal with andropause. I mean, like you see young periandropausal men without testosterone. It's like, so if a guy says, oh, I'm not andropausal yet, do I need HRT? You know, it's same thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and you know, these young periandropausal men, uh, they're not getting their physical activity out in the sunshine and producing their own testosterone. And they too are born dysfunctional because even when a woman gives birth with her dysfunctional ovaries, she doesn't give birth to a young man with healthy testicles. So even as you know, these young boys uh, are periandropausal from the get-go. As these women are not transitioning through puberty into a state of reproduction, they're just kind of transitioning into perimenopause. Yeah, in the the assault of um, lifestyle habits, bad lifestyle habits, their circadian rhythm is almost, it's so backwards. It's flipped upside down for many of these folks. 
when you go out to the Midwest and you see like the farmer's kids out on the farm working in nature and they actually get the light of day and they're not sitting in a, in a basement or in an apartment playing a video game um, or they're up all night till three or four in the morning watching blue light when they're supposed to be uh, blacked out and, and actually let their melatonin rise. Um, they're so opposite of the way it should be circadian wise. They're, they're in a total mismatch. So to expect hormones to be optimal is absolutely positively impossible in that scenario. It is absolutely impossible. That's not how, how uh, we came into existence on this earth. That's not the rhythm that was set uh, when we, when, uh, when we um, came out of our Neanderthal days. That is not the, the rhythm of sun and darkness and grounding and positive energy. That's totally the opposite. Yeah, it, yeah, it's too bad these young boys, these periandropausal boys, nobody's really talking about the low testosterone in these young men. And somebody's not telling them, hey, you need to go outside and run a few laps out in the sun or go, you know, go do some physical activity and pump, pump some blood through those testicles and remind your body that you're actually vibrant, young, and alive. And yeah, I, I feel bad because though we are talking about estrogen in young women, just the, the conversation of these young men, uh, they're suffering too with this this depression and, and the diet. As you know, Tony, when the testosterone is low in men, they get depressed and they get sugar and bad carb cravings. As with these women, no matter what, when estrogen is deficient, women will have sugar cravings and bad carb cravings. And it's very difficult to shy away from those things when you're hormonally deficient, because those are the things that actually give a temporary uh, false sense of peace that these people are searching for because they're just so desperate and hungry, not necessarily for food. Well, they are for food, but um, for just that calmness, that the temporary fake calmness that the sugar and bad carbs give for a, a period of time. And so it's a vicious cycle. And when you give young women abundant amounts of estrogen, these sugar cravings go away and they don't crave those bad carbs and they're able to handle their stress so they don't reach for those things when they're under stress because they have enough estrogen to cope. Yep. Yeah, we're, it's a downward spiral for sure, especially with young men sitting in front of a computer or in, the, in front of the TV playing video games. And then they start ordering Uber Eats. Yeah, they don't want to leave the house. So it, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad cycle. It really is. And there really needs to be a wake-up call if this millennial generation ever wants to be healthy then they really need to be coached on how to properly live their life, how to sleep, what to eat, the impact it has, why it's important to sleep when the sun is down, why it's important to be awake when the sun is up, why it's important to get physical activity and that includes the sunshine and connecting with the earth. I mean, really just bringing the person back to a state of, you know, the paleolithic man right. in, in their truest form when, you know, things were cycling in, a, in an abundant fashion. When I mean cycle, I mean the cycle of life, the day cycle, the monthly right. cycle, the life cycle, the yearly cycle. HRT to maintain not going into menopause is bad. Yeah. See, this is kind of where I, my thing is, I, I'm not sure why people say that. I, I haven't you know, read anything or found any studies that say, um, to take hormones, and I, I think I'm going to try to clarify this a little bit better, taking hormones to maintain a healthy menstrual cycle forever is not a good thing. Right. And, um, you know, we just found that when women maintained a healthy menstrual cycle, uh, for most women, they weren't susceptible to the mental and physical diseases 
that women had when they didn't have a, a menstrual cycle. And so our goal is really to restore a healthy menstrual cycle for most. It just depends on how postmenopausal a woman has been because you you know what not every woman wants to maintain a healthy menstrual cycle or can maintain a healthy menstrual cycle. But if you can optimize hormones that mimic somebody in that state of optimum health, it just women aren't susceptible to the diseases that they have when women are menopausal. So why would you want to spend the rest of your life estrogen deficient and susceptible to the mental and physical decline that that brings? I mean, it's clear that women in their mid-20s with healthy menstrual cycles don't get the same diseases that women do when they don't have menstrual cycles. So what we found, if you can maintain a healthy menstrual cycle, you just don't get that mental and physical decline as those women uh, who don't have menstrual cycles indefinitely. So, I mean, there's some women that, oh, I, I don't want to have a, a period. It's like, if, if you're having, uh, you're supposed to have a light to moderate flow when you have good hormones, not in menstrual, not a horrible nightmare, uh, like what most women, estrogen deficient women get. So... Basically, we feel that maintaining a menstrual cycle indefinitely is brain and body protective. And we find that the brain and body don't go into the living decay state until death if we can just maintain those hormone levels in the menstrual cycle. Okay. We haven't haven't found anything over the past 15 plus years that women had bad experiences with this. In fact, the opposite is true. If we can maintain the menstrual cycle, they're better off. And there's a lot of people that argue that fact. Well, I'm not quite sure where they're getting their data. I don't. <laughs> well, really, I, I don't. Right. And, I, and if they've worked in a hormone clinic and they've seen this with their own eyes, I would certainly like to know their theory because this is what we've been doing. This is, right. you know, so I'd like to know where are they getting their information and I'd like to know their clinical uh, outcomes, really. Uh, Tony, you have anything to add to that one? No, I, I, just that I, I think that's the important part. With somebody with Marie's clinical experience, it's really important because she's done static dosing. Uh, she's done rhythmic dosing. She's worked with other protocols and then made enhancements to protocols. So it's really important to get that perspective. And I'm, I'm glad that she's speaking to that because I think most women, when they think hormone replacement nowadays, they don't think of sick cyclic or rhythmic dosing, they think of uh, static dosing. And um, I've seen a lot of suboptimal results with, with rhythmic dosing. So, and I'm sure Marie can speak to that and, and really parse those two apart. But I think the, uh, I recommend it for people that I care about, uh, the cyclic uh, rhythmic dosing. Uh, I wish there were more practitioners that were involved in it and trained well and trained up. Um, but it's going to come from the people requesting that. It's going to come from the field and patients actually asking their doctor for those services. And that's how the field's going to grow, by people in the field wanting that service. Okay. Um, But real important. Yeah, I think once women find out uh, that there's more than one way that, you know, what they've been doing, you know, doesn't seem to be working for them. And there there are other options. And to seek out these physicians who do these advanced rhythmic dosing at physiological dosing levels. And physiological dosing, I just want to clarify what that means, is the hormones are dosed in a way that mimics the natural physiology of a young reproductive woman. The way that it's dosed, the way that it's administered in the rhythmic fashion and the amounts that's dosed is a physiological dose that 
would mimic a, a young woman's levels and not an old dying woman's levels. Okay, good. Let's talk about bioidentical, the word bioidentical hormone. And what is, I mean, bio, a lot of questions are missed are bioidentical means natural, uh, bioidentical is best, only women benefit from bioidentical. So who wants to tackle the bioidentical synthetic part? Tony, why don't you take this? You're pretty good at this. Uh, bioidentical, uh, the, the similar molecular makeup that the body has. I mean, it's uh, not, not real complex. A testosterone molecule, when you break it down in chemistry, we want to replace the the, the, the body's own composition of testosterone with the exact setup um, that the, the, the exact molecular makeup that is the, the body produces on its own. So uh, we don't use replace testosterone with other deriv derivatives of anabolic steroids. Not that you can't, and I'll say that emphatically, that you can use other um, anabolic steroids to upregulate testosterone receptors. But for the sake of this argument, Testosterone is replaced with testosterone, not a derivative of, of, of testosterone, not a offshoot with a different molecular structure. Testosterone is replaced with testosterone. Yeah, when I explain to my clients uh, about the, with bioidentical, I don't really have this conversation so much anymore, but bioidentical really does match the molecular structure. Your body thinks it produces its own. And, you know, people say, well, isn't bioidentical still synthetic? In a way, there's a synthesizing that takes place where you can't take the molecular structure from a Mexican wild yam and, you know, give it to a person and it's going to mimic. There is some synthesizing. And uh, the goal is really you want to mimic as naturally as possible nearly everything of the patient, whether it's the, the molecular structure of the hormone, the way the hormone is dosed in the administration, uh, and in the, the amount that it's dosed. So... Though they, you know, I, I've been doing quite a bit of research and I, they, there's some synthetic, I haven't found those studies that even synthetic estrogen causes cancer. I just, when you look at studies that indicate that estrogen causes cancer, the reality is those estrogen levels are just much too low. There's many reasons, but I'm just still not, I don't use and I don't really uh, work with synthetic estrogen. Um, I prefer the bioidentical, just... I, I don't know, even though we haven't really seen, we just get a better result. Uh, all right, let's talk about dosing real quick. Dosing for optimal results. I mean, when people say dosing, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, like Tony and, is, and I have talked about dosing to mimic the natural response, the same thing with Maria has spoken about. It's like, how much do doctors prescribe? What is the right amount of hormones to prescribe? Well, it's going to be different per individual, am I correct? Um, yeah, to a degree. Okay. One, it depends on the HRT that you're using. And okay. we, the height, we use uh, uh, fourth generation. So we use uh, a concentrated estrogen. And we want to dose those levels that mimic a young woman, that we can get those blood serum levels to that that mimics a healthy young reproductive female. And so you have to dose those in, a right, in, the, right, in, the, in the right amounts Okay. And in the right manner. So in the right hormones. So I talk about this a lot. The right hormones in the right amounts and in the right manner. So making sure that you're on the right hormone regime and making sure that they're dosed uh, at the right levels. And those dose that, that dosing is a titration. So you start the patient off on one on a certain level and then you titrate that dose up over a period of time. And that varies between patients. 
And then you want to dial that dose in to mimic a young, healthy, reproductive female. And like I was mentioned before in our conversations that with estrogen, we like to see those ranges anywhere between 150 and 600 some plus for some women, just depending on where you take those blood labs. So you want to make sure that you give the patient enough hormones that it shows up in the blood. So that dosing needs to be optimal. And then it needs to really be administered in a rhythmic fashion for most women do best with that rhythmic dosing. Okay. So we consider optimal. Tony? Yeah, dosing for men, um, really, um, I, I look at the symptomology too. So while I can give you a range of, of dosing, depending on where the male's at, we really want to take into account, and similar to Maria, I'm absolutely positive, is to really see how the client responds. So a male like myself, doesn't feel comfortable taking dosing uh, that would take my blood levels up over a thousand. However, uh, my my personal sweet spot is somewhere around seven fifty to eight fifty. I feel really optimized. I feel good. I feel strong. I feel alert. But many men don't don't respond well until you cross certain thresholds. Uh, the 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 lowest uh, conversely is trying to get a, a target response. We're more looking at uh, for men, or at least in my experience. Is trying to trying to get a threshold level where they function alertly and at a more youthful level without taking them to a point of what some may consider a supra physiological dose. I have had some clients actually do very well up at twelve or thirteen hundred, mm-hmm. and the, there there is an argument there that says if we were tracking testosterone levels of men say a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, five hundred years ago. And uh, a normal, uh, a quote unquote normal range could be as high as 2,000 or 2,200. And now we're seeing the labs actually downregulate. I believe it was LabCorp brought down the range, the upper level of the um, uh, physiologic norm dose uh, level of testosterone down to 900. I believe it's 939. I'd have to look. But um, so they came down from 11, a high 11s. 1100. So now their lab range, if you were going to fit in their lab range and say somebody exceeded that 930 some number, then you would be considered, um, you know, above the, above the, uh, the lab norm. Okay. So, um, they actually brought it down. And I think that's, that's a dangerous game to play because before you know it, the lab keeps moving ranges down and they'll have men, uh, normally, the, up to six or 700, which I can tell you, most men don't feel really optimized at 600. So, um, but if we can see this this trend continue, and say let's let's for argument's sake say a range goes from nine hundred down to seven hundred three years from now, and now the normal range is three hundred or even they lower the low end say down to two hundred from three hundred to two hundred. Now we're looking at a considered normal range from a lab between two hundred and seven hundred, which I can guarantee you, um, uh, most men are not going to feel adequate when they fall within that range. So that's a dangerous game we play, and um, that's something that we need to be aware of. We need to watch with these with the lab reports for norm and ranges. And again, I, I wouldn't, I, I personally, and most physicians that are in the know that actually do well with male hormone replacement are looking at symptomology and many other things other than just a number. Right. They're trying to get them into that really nice, like Marie uses uh, eloquently, the sweet spot for that individual person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you know, Tony, what what one guy would need a 1400 level of testosterone for another guy wouldn't need it so much. Absolutely. So you really have to dial it into that particular patient. I mean, I, I like to just not, 
should just tell physicians, you can't just really go by the reference range. You can't do that. You just, you really have to understand your patient and dial the dose in. I mean, you can use it as a guiding tool because as you know, optimum dosing is, is dosing up towards the upper third of the standard reference range. But like you said, Tony, they keep changing those reference ranges according to the labs. So the labs are dictating where women's hormones are. So you got some lab tech saying, oh, well, this is where it should be. And so everybody else is to comply and you can't figure out can't figure out why women are pulling their hair out and getting fat. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just crazy. So the doctor really does need to be trained and to know what is that sweet spot for the patient. And and, and I caution any, anyone that's using, that is, uh, knows a man that's getting hormone replacement therapy, specifically testosterone replacement. Uh, I'll give you a real life scenario that's actually happening out there on main street in every city in this country. I had an air conditioning tech come to my home. I had actually I knew this fella from 10 years back and he was approximately my age, mid fifties. And I had asked him, he didn't look really well. And I had asked him how he was doing. And he says, oh, you know, I'm doing okay. He says, I feel a little under the weather today. He looked just awful. And um, we got to talk. He said, what have you been doing? And, and, and we went over the hormone replacement and told him he heard the word hormones and his ears perked up. He says, oh, I'm on hormone replacement. I said, really? I said, uh, I said, well, where do you go and what's your protocol look like? He says, oh, I just go down to this, this doctor. He says he's, he's hung his shingle at different addresses over the last eight or nine years. He keeps moving. So I'm not quite sure why. He said, but I just go there and his nurse gives me an injection of 250 milligrams of testosterone every two weeks. And I said, really? And how, how does that work for you? He says, God, I just don't feel very good. He said, for the first couple of days, you know, I, I feel okay for the first day or two, maybe three days. He says, no, nah, I don't really feel that good. He says, but I feel just something wrong. Some, and I said, I asked him, I said, can you show me your, any lab work? He said, well, I don't have any on me. I said, do you ever look at your lab work? He says, oh yeah, I look at my testosterone levels. I said, well, do they run estrogen? He said, oh no, I've never seen anything about estrogen. Do they run steroid hormone binding globulin? Have you ever seen your prolactin levels? Anything else, any other thing? No, he just runs my testosterone. Inappropriately, dangerously managing a client like that is totally irresponsible. But it's happening every single day out there on Main Street. Every, every lot. I can find that story for you um, over and over and over again. So that is inappropriately managing uh, a client, probably somebody who's hanging a shingle, a physician that does probably growth hormone and maybe does a little testosterone, but doing it improperly is ex- it, that is what I would call dangerous. Yeah, there's a lot of dangerous dosing out there. When- Doctors really need to be educated with how to do it right for both men and women. And some are still using harpoon-like needles, <laughs> doing gluteal injections with an inch to an inch and or inch and a half needle. You know, twenty gauge harpoons they're sticking in these um, men's gluteal area. Um, there's just no need for that. I can get absolutely stable blood levels with an insulin syringe or even um, a 3 8 27, 26 gauge, no problem. Um, and you can do it in the thigh, the shoulder, plenty of sites to do it, plenty of online resources with good information. But, I'm laughing. The 18 gauge needle in the butt. Scary. Does it bring, bring back memories for you, Tom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's scary stuff. Scary I style. think I've Let's got see. some in my closet here. 18, I got an 18 gauge in my closet. Oh yeah. my God. Uh, don't don't forget to scrape it along the asphalt before you actually give the injection. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man. I threaten my, my male patients when they come in being honorary. Don't make me scrape this needle across the asphalt. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> just to give That's... you just on dosing, Tom. Though what I normally see is somewhere 
somewhere on a, on a, on a, a biweekly dose, a biweekly injection, somewhere anywhere between 100, 120 milligrams up to 200 milligrams um, will do just fine. We'll right. find that spot somewhere in there with just about just about uh, most of my clients, most right. of the 90 to 95% power. Occasionally, you have to jump outside that range. If you're going to combat SHBG, you, you can certainly bring uh, outrun SHBG with higher levels of testosterone, which is not my, my, my way of doing business. I'd right. Well, there's other ways to decrease that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. SHBG, sure. Yeah. Another myth here of HRT will not address weight issues, gain, or loss. Estrogen is needed in abundant amounts to really give a woman her figure back. And, you know, if your estrogen dictates the shoulder waist hip ratio with women. Right. And so women will have a hard time losing weight if they're estrogen deficient. We just, it's hard to get a successful weight loss regime for somebody who's, who has no estrogen circulating in their blood. So we have to, uh, I mean, it's actually estrogen is one of the best weight loss tools a woman can have. No, I 100% agree. I'm, I'm done there with uh, myths and truths. Do either of you have any myths and truths that you would like to discuss before we close out today? I don't know, Marie, anything? Well, these kind of covered them. I, I mean, you know, really, does estrogen cause cancer? And, you know, uh, women, women get fat on estrogen if it's kept too low. But, yeah, these, these are most of the myths that people have, and I think it, it covered it pretty well. I think there was one I was one that I was thinking about is the cost and uh insurance and I know uh I know I don't I don't take insurance but do you Marie do you take insurance for hormone replacement therapy? There are many reasons why I don't deal with insurance. Okay. One of them has to do with the mentality of the person. Right. If you've got a patient that is constantly in this insurance-based mentality of, oh, my insurance will pay for this, it won't pay for that, it won't pay for that. They pick and choose the kind of treatment that they want as well. And the doctors who really know how to dial in the hormones don't take insurance because the insurance companies dictate the type of treatments doctors can prescribe. And so it limits the doctors on, you know, what they can what they can prescribe. So if a patient comes in with depression symptoms, the doctor has to write prescriptions to manage the symptoms of the depression. They're not interested in paying for estrogen to get rid of the depression that's caused it. Right. So so people who kind of stay in this insurance-based mentality will really always be in a state of estrogen deficiency. And those practitioners who really want the freedom to treat the patient the way they see fit uh, don't take insurance. And um, yeah, going to doctors that think outside of the box, you want these practitioners that just really don't mess around with the handcuffs that the insurance company puts on these practitioners. It really limits what they can prescribe and what they can recommend because now you have to jump through the hoops of the insurance company because if you think the labs dictate ranges, the insurance company dictates a lot more. And so you want to get out of that insurance mentality. Right. I also notice that patients, when they pay out of pocket, they're more compliant. They hang on every word you say, right. you do all of your recommendations, and they have better clinical results. Right. So that's another reason why I don't. It's like really, if if you're if you're really worried about that sort of thing, and I'm not, you know, it's just I know it's uh, not cheap to be on a good hormone regime, but I tell you something, it's more cost effective than having your mind and body and family and household fall apart. Right, a lot cheaper. 
Yeah. yeah, and if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. So. My mom ain't happy. I tell you, that's what I was telling, talking to you guys earlier in an earlier conversation. It's like the the expense of getting a mother's hormones optimal should be a household expense. It affects everybody in the family because yeah, when a, when a when a woman doesn't have estrogen, there's chaos in the home. And so this should really be part of the family budget because everybody benefits from a woman who is hormonally sound. Tony, you got anything to add today? Uh, no, no, it's been a good episode. A lot yeah. of uh, a lot of good discussion and back and forth. And just for uh, if you want to put anything in there about men um, and, and, and insurance, most of the practitioners, well, all of the practitioners that I deal with that I would consider competent to deal with uh, male hormone replacement are outside of insurance. Right. Well, I mean, insurance, and I would almost guarantee that insurance had something to do with lowering the optimal ranges or the lab ranges. Yeah, it just, those lab ranges, and every lab is different. Right. And that's what drives create. It doesn't matter where the patient goes, they're going to come back with a different lab range. So, what's the doctor to do if they go to lab crap one? I'm sorry, lab corp one time. Lab crap. <laughs> I'm so used to saying that. Oh, lab <laughs> crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they're the worst when it comes to those ranges. That's why we say that it's, it's yeah. so bad. And yeah, we don't get good results. You know, and you get a different one from Quest or from BioReference. It just right. wherever you go and you're at the mercy of whatever a medical technologist put those lab ranges together. I mean, this come from scientific data. This just comes from whoever put those labs together from that lab. Well, let's... Be, I, before we go, I got one missing myth, and it's really not due to hormone hormone related, but it is in a way because let's talk about normal. Let's talk about normal lab ranges versus optimal ranges. A lot of people take what they get their labs from their physician and say, "Well, I'm normal." Well, no, I hear that all the time. Tony gets right. that all the time. Oh, you're normal all the time. All the time. I hear it every day. Your body's falling apart and your right. mind, you're losing your mind, but you're normal. Right. You're a normal estrogen deficient woman who is miserable. <laughs> yes, you are normal. You want to live in this state of misery, or do we want to go towards the upper third of that standard reference range to optimal? And see, this is a, though about, that's what they teach. You want to go, optimal is, go, is towards the upper third of a standard reference range. Right. And sometimes it has to be higher. So if you want to know what is optimal, yeah, you may be in the range, but you can still feel like crap when you're in the range. And you might need to go towards the upper third of that range to really get some mental and physical benefits off of uh, those hormones. Right. As I know Tony can attest to that too. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the, one of the first things myself I discuss with clients when I, it's like, all right, yeah, you're normal. But let's talk about what... what <laughs> Yeah, I want you to feel optimal. I don't want you to walk around feeling normal. <laughs> yeah, because that's not normal. Is not healthy. No, that's just an average pool of data they're right. going by. That the average unhealthy person they didn't take that data pool from a, a healthy young reproductive male and female for right. reference ranges to measure against, which is what we should be doing. Not right. taking the pool from an old decrepit menopausal woman oh yeah you're you're as miserable as the rest of them you're <laughs> that doesn't work for me or our patients they're like i don't want to feel this horrible i want to feel better i want to feel good and some and most women don't realize and men don't realize how good they can actually feel exactly a practitioner who just understands this one concept right yeah. 
Exactly. And the the clinician, I I think some people get, they get so used to feeling bad. Miserable. The bad becomes the new norm. Yeah. Their bad is the new norm. And they, they really don't understand what it is again, to feel energetic and lively and thriving. And when the the clinician, a skilled clinician will ask the right probing question, Mm -hmm. they will get, they will get to the bottom of what's really afflicting people. Uh, asking, uh, sometimes I ask the same question two or three times and people look at me strange and, and, and I'll get a different answer <laughs> two or three, times. Right. you know, they will, they will. And, and then they'll finally understand that I'm, what I'm, my probing is I have, there's a method to the madness. So it's really important that the, the skill set of probing and listening and a skilled clinician is worth their weight in gold. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, there's more than one way to get your hormones balanced. Well, not really. There's a few different ways to get your hormones balanced. And the rest is just causing a lot of estrogen and testosterone deficiency issues in men and women. And so the goal is really to restore hormones in both genders and all genders that change brain function and body function is minimal, low dosing, that barely treats the symptoms just doesn't work. And this is why people still feel crazy on hormones because they're not given the right amounts. They're not given the optimal amounts because they're going to practitioners who don't have any training, who know what they're doing with it. And that's why it's important to really vet your practitioner. What do they use for ranges? Are they looking for optimal ranges? Are they okay with, oh, you're... Your thyroid looks fine. You're you're four point two. There's nothing wrong with you. Your TSH is just fine. You're in the range. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Normal normal TSH four point two. Oh my gosh. And those ranges keep changing too. Yeah. It's like yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you very much, and we will see you on the next episode. Tom, thank you for having me. And Tony, it was nice to see you again. Same same as well. Good to see you guys. Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.